Is the Hippocratic Code outdated? You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and joining me today is the noted author, Dr. Stuart Justman. Dr. Justman is the professor of liberal studies at the University of Montana, a lay member of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, and a member of the committee on 5-alpha reductase. He is also a survivor of cancer of the prostate himself. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We're going to be discussing your newest book, Do No Harm, How a Magic Bullet for Prostate Cancer Became a Medical Quandary. Could you tell us first what led you to write this particular book? Well, I wrote a book more or less about my own experience as a cancer patient, not exactly that, but in 2004 or so, and it was well-received, came to the attention of someone on the 5-alpha reductase committee that you mentioned, uh, at which point I was asked to join the committee and then immersed myself in the finasteride literature, which of course is what the committee was concerned with. And I was, first of all, astonished to learn that I knew nothing about the uh, finasteride question, even though it kind of momentarily burst into the press in 2003. But I guess the key word is momentarily. Who did you write the book for? I certainly did hope that it would be read by uh, concerned physicians like our own audience. But my informing assumption was that an issue this powerful and this profound had wider implications. And I would hope the kind of issue that would speak to just concerned laymen like myself. I started out by saying, uh, with tongue-in-cheek possibly, is the Hippocratic Code outdated? Because if you read it, it, there is certainly a gender-specific language. Human rights and civil liberties are not included. Not to discriminate uh, for race or religion or other grounds as far as providing health care is not covered. By definition, it's antiquated. It was written in antiquity. It's antiquated. And medicine can do things now that were completely undreamed of uh, even 100 years ago, much less in antiquity. So the question is, can we, at this late date, receive any guidance from a principle, you know, as antiquated as that? But let me rephrase the question. I mean, if the question is, should we throw out uh, safety concerns? (laughs) How about if I phrase it like that? Mm -hmm. I mean, clearly the answer to that is no. And maybe... You know, in this day when medicine is so much more powerful, thank heavens, than it was 100 years ago, maybe it's important to be that much more mindful, not, not less, but more mindful of safety concerns. I know there are doctors who think that the rule do no harm, which is, of course, phrased categorically, that it's way too inhibiting. It doesn't make any kind of sense. Uh, and, in fact, it's rarely referred to, but it is referred to. It continues to be referred to on and off in the medical literature, including the literature on prostate cancer. I encountered any number of references to it. I think it's kind of used opportunistically. Well, I, don't, I, I try to think methodically, not opportunistically. You know, how should we think about the prevention revolution, which is perhaps starting to get underway, I'll say perhaps, in prostate cancer? You know, what I was leading up to, there is a mixed message in the PCPT results, which might suggest that if you use a particular drug, you might cause harm, even though that possibly the greater number of people might be benefited. That's what I was alluding to uh, as far as the double message and to do no harm. Could you kind of tell us and bring us 
to the conclusions that we're now fighting with? Well, let me put it in stark mathematical terms as they emerged in 2003. If you treat 1,000 men for seven years with 5 milligrams of finasteride, you stand to spare 15 diagnoses of prostate cancer. That's 15 cases that won't happen. However, it appears that three additional cases of high-grade prostate cancer, the more dangerous kind, are created. And so here's your trade-off. It does sparing 15 cases justify inducing three cases of the more dangerous kind of prostate cancer. Now, believe it or not, there were those in 2003 who said, yes, just look at the numbers. You know, there's a five to one ratio there. Look at the numbers. I mean, to me, that is uh, an appallingly unmedical way to resolve that question. And I'm very thankful that the urological world did not resolve, given state of knowledge in 2003, did not resolve the question that way. Doctors did not use, as I'm sure your listeners know, doctors did not rush to use finasteride preventively. Which really brings up an interesting point that this year, actually at the American Urologic Meetings, this study was again re-looked at. Could you kind of tell us what the most recent information suggests about is there really an increase in number of high-grade malignancies? From the beginning, there was a lot of suspicion among the PCPT researchers and perhaps the urological world at large, that the inflated numbers of high-grade prostate cancer were probably due to some kind of detection bias. I mean, after all, the finasteride reduces the volume of the prostate, and that in itself, intuitively, would make it easier to find the disease. It also has some other effects that would favor detection of the disease. So, the possibility that detection bias of some kind or another, or or even a combination of detection biases, is playing into the results. That possibility has been out there in the literature since 2003, and it's, of course, still alive. Well, how do you correct for detection bias? One way is to examine, instead of biopsy, I mean, biopsying the prostate is, has to be done, but it's crude. And it provides, the information it provides is crude compared to the information uh, available to the pathologist who's examining radical prostatectomy specimens under the microscope. I mean, at at that point, the prostate is an open book. One of the articles that appeared in Cancer Prevention Research last month concerned or discussed results of the examination of 500 radical prostatectomy specimens and found no elevation of the cancer numbers on the finasteride side. So that finding, as far as it goes, and I would qualify it that way, adds to the circumstantial evidence in favor of finasteride, of which there's some. What are we to do if the research begins to show that this drug actually is beneficial, that indeed the reason for the high number of high-grade malignancies, the high Gleason's that we're seeing, have more to do with the shrinkage of the gland? Are physicians, the urologic community, the primary care physician, suddenly going to be able to say, you know, I've been telling you since 2003 that this drug is not a drug that I want you to take, but now I want you to take it. How do we deal with that in a medical community? Well, let me back up, and and because I don't think that the articles that appeared about a month ago in the cancer profession research are as revolutionary as that. I don't think that they're going to make the prostate cancer world stop on a dime and, you know, reverse course. Uh, I I doubt that that's going to happen. Um, When the results of the Dutasteride trial come in, and I think 
uh, doctor that they are doing, oh, within the next two, three years, something like that? Let me just back up. Dutasteride inhibits uh, both uh, both isoforms of 5-alpha reductase, so it's, yeah, it's a more potent 5-alpha reductase inhibitor. And we'll see. I mean, if the results of that experiment do not uh, raise safety concerns, but do vindicate the preventive value of dutasteride, I think at that point the urological world will probably embrace dutasteride. It's interesting that you mentioned that. I'm, I'm puzzled what the medical community will do. This dutasteride will be on label, well, because it's met the criteria of the Federal Drug Administration, will be quite expensive, and yet Proscar a drug that is now generic and is probably $2 a pill, will be off-label. And yet, in the minds of many of us, the off-label prescription of Proscar may be indicated just for the financial savings for so many people when you're talking about millions. Right. It puts a doctor in a tough spot. I, I don't really know if dutasteride is vindicated, let's say, by the reduced trial. I'm not certain about how quickly the FDA could be expected to approve it. Tamoxifen has been approved for chemo prevention by the FDA. Proscar, as you say, has not. And I don't know how speedily the FDA will act in dutasteride's favor if it does, but it's funny. I mean, ethically, I think the uppermost issue is to prescribe or not to prescribe. And then the secondary issue is, well, if you're going to prescribe, do I prescribe dutasteride on-label or Proscar off-label? But that, to me, is the order of importance, though. You know, we, we kind of return to there's a lot of healthy men who are asking possibly to take a medication for a disease they may never get, and then if they do get it, they might be better off having not had any treatment for it. Right. What, right. Maybe we're not looking at the right patients. Maybe there should be some way that we can look at different groups of men as risk, and those are the men that we should pursue our investigation or possibly give a chemo-preventive drug to. No doubt about it. I mean, I think that what's most sorely needed in prostate research is clearly some more sensitive way than is now available to identify men at risk. I mean, the way we got ourselves into the mess that we're in is as a result of the PSA revolution, which unleashed a tidal wave of diagnoses that no one anticipated. There's now no going back on that. However, there are serious, defensible philosophical arguments against screening for a condition such as prostate cancer in the state of our knowledge right now. Could you tell me what those are? Well, that experience has shown that the detection of prostate cancer results in massive overtreatment. One of the kind of statistical whatever anomalies that jumped out at me was that just because of the surveillance regimen that all men were under in the PCPT, whether they were on the placebo side or the other side. You know, they were regularly screened, GREs, follow-up biopsies, and then at the end, right, all of the men were asked to undergo a purely investigative biopsy. So that, that, that is just a ton of screening. The result is that they found a tremendous amount of cancer, so much that even the finasteride takers in the PCPT had a, a rate or a prevalence of prostate cancer that exceeded a man's lifetime risk. They were in the experiment about seven years. How did that happen? Well, as a result of screening. So what you're really saying is, look and you will find. It's almost like build and they will come. Yeah. Beware what you look for, you might find it. And that is the excruciating dilemma that is gripping the prostate cancer world right now, no doubt. And millions of men face 
you know, the experience of being diagnosed and treated for a disease which may or may not be potentially lethal. I think our discussion really is, again, kept this Pandora's box open. I don't think that at the present time we have an answer, but certainly the discussion continues. And every man who's listening and every woman who is interested in her family and the male members will continue to find this very thought-provoking and very informative as far as where we go with this question. I want to thank Dr. Stuart Justman, who's been our guest. We've been discussing the whole subject of cancer chemo prevention, brought on by his very thought-provoking and interesting book. I certainly enjoyed it, Do No Harm, How a Magic Bullet for Prostate Cancer Became a Medical Quandary. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. To listen to our on-demand library, visit us at ReachMD.com. If you have comments or suggestions, call us at 888-MDXM157. Thank you for listening.